Hello, and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, and super exciting for me, this is the 100th episode of Pod Sequentialism. So um, we will give a little, a little weak thunderclap here in the room. And, um, and what I wanted to do, especially since, well, because it's my show and I get to do what I want, I guess, within reason, that instead of talking to someone that everybody would know, I wanted to talk to somebody that I've known for a very, very long time and is important for me to have on the show. And would be, I think, a fascinating interview, and and I'm sure he will be. But the um, before we get into that, we want to talk about the fact that Pod Sequentialism is recorded weekly at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles in Sun- on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. And um, you know that the Meltdown Network started out as the sister network of the Nerdist, and so there is quite a bit of crossover between our two camps. Uh, Nerdist Showroom, of course, is in the back of Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. The podcast started as an outgrowth of the Pop Sequential exhibition and catalog which became a series of traveling comic art shows and uh, that first show was in May of 2011 the catalogs there's still a handful of catalogs available it has become the only to date price guide of uh, original comic book art of the modern era and uh, it's funny to compare back to the prices that were only at this point seven years ago a little less than seven years ago and see how things have changed already and how it was sort of an indicator of things to come. So um, also we want to talk about Gallery 30 South. And of course, Gallery 30 South is a new endeavor that my wife and I have out in Pasadena, California. The uh, show that is up, as you will hear this, is the extended um, religious paintings of the Expanded Galaxy show of the remixed Star Wars paintings, which features canvases from the 16th through 19th centuries that have been damaged and therefore upcycled with new paintings of Star Wars characters. And we invite you to follow us at gallery30south.com, as well as at podsec, P-O-D-S-E-Q. And um, you can also come and visit me at La Luz de Jesus Gallery every once in a while. So now that we've got that out of the way, I wanted to talk to my very good friend, Paul Marcure. Paul, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. Happy to be a, a guest here. Happy <laughs> 100, man. Thanks, man. You, you're the person I wanted to spend my time with on my, on my, on my milestone. And, um, well, um, that's, that's very nice. <laughs> after um, after we hang up, I've, I'm going to give a call into Paul Glavin, and I'll be talking to Tom Sagoski next week, actually. So it'll be be a, a reunion of sorts uh, through time and space and uh, pre-recorded time on a podcast network uh, here in the 21st century. So um, oh, that's a- <laughs> what amazing, um, amazing. What people don't know, and we're going to fill them in on, is that I basically collect comics. Because of you, um, I got interested in in any form of of what people would call culture and what some people would call brain poison. Uh, because of you, and I think that's a good thing. And it was because I had seen an episode of Simon and Simon, um, the CBS um, you know hour long uh, comedic detective show, in which there was an episode centered around a comic book mystery. And it caused me to open up the phone book right there on the shag carpet in the living room and look for comic book shops, which were, of course, under bookstores. There was no separate listing for comic book shops in the early 80s. And I realized that there was a comic book shop in downtown Lynn. And uh, after I finished my paper route that next day, I, I continued driving past the record store where I bought all my heavy metal albums, just another block and a half to um, Corner Bookstore in Lynn, Massachusetts, which was at that time in the center of Central Square, which was with the main bus artery in Lynn. And 
I parked my bike out front, I think, and walked in, and you were having a conversation, I believe, with um, probably Scott Steves, um, quite possibly, um, oh my gosh, um, uh, Jim Fontis, and uh, somebody else about what the best comic on the racks was, and it was a very heated argument. And I think you were championing Mage, and um, I think uh, Jim Fontes liked ElfQuest or something like that. And um, I think that actually Mark Callahan he versus Wagner. That's 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 scary. Yeah, yeah. And the um, and I think Callahan might have been there. Mark Callahan, and um, he would have been talking probably about one of the mainstream books. I think he he was reading. This was before Scout. This was before Dark Knight. Um, and I think I was already working there by the time Dark Knight number one came out, but, um, I was buying comics out of the three for a dollar bin. Um, I was sifting out anything that had a Bernie Wrightson cover and purchasing it and just kind of staying quiet and listening to the conversations for quite a while. And now this would have probably been like 84 and I'm thinking that, um, you know, you had worked there for how long at that point? Well, my entire run lasted about four years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, once again, you're a lot closer to those years than I was, um, or actually same distance, but a younger mind. Honest to God, Matt, I can't tell you, to to be quite honest with you, an awful lot of the 80s were just a, a pleasant blur, if you uh, take my meaning. <laughs> I but, do. I was uh, there. I remember. <clears throat> I remember my earliest recount of, of recognizing you at the counter is, I was standing there with Smigoski, uh, Tom Smigoski, and we yep. were talking about he was at a, a break from uh, Northeastern College. He mm-hmm. worked part-time at the store. It was convenient, close to his house, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. We'd both been you know, connected to the store for so long. We both grew up there uh, before this momentous occasion of your arrival we're talking about now. <laughs> but uh, talking to him, this you know, little blonde kid came up with a G.I. Joe number two and you know, basically put forth... G.I. Joe number two, saying that you bought it at a friend's recommendation, and upon reading it, you found that it was brain poison. You know, it was just one of the most awful things you'd ever read in your life, and you wanted to be directed towards something else good, and you used the reference of, like, Marshall Rogers' Batmans and things like that. And Tom and I just kind of stood a gap, you know, as far as, you know, chin down on, on chest, as far as somebody asking those questions that, you know, certainly wasn't allowed to sit at the adult table at Thanksgiving. Right. Um, you know, and from that moment on, we just, you know, it was kind of like a fast friendship. It was, you know, a lot of camaraderie. There wasn't, I think the most amazing thing we remember about you is that there wasn't a conversation that you couldn't follow or contribute to, which entertained us and scared the hell out of us all <laughs> at the same time. But in a in an environment like Lynn, that kind of, you know, intellect and curiosity was something to be kind of, you know, sheltered and, and mentored, if you will. So, right. You know, it was always, from that very moment, it was obvious you belonged to the bookstore. And we're going to set the stage a little bit about what it was like in Lynn at that time. So I remember um, I had, around that same time, I was also on my ride home, on my bicycle ride home, on my BMX from downtown Lynn back to Western Ave where I lived. And I lived um, in in what you might call, um, it was definitely Eastland, but I lived pretty close to the Salem border. I'm not too far from Buchanan Bridge. 
And the the city had just very recently taken an incredible downturn, but it had been on a path of economic uh, insolvency for quite a while. So the the oh, big sure. business in our, our city was General Electric. And, um, you know, the General Electric, um, was it the engine facility that was along the Linway was the main employer for decades. Uh, my father had worked there probably 35 years earlier and um, when it was an extension of the Signal Corps. And when... GE decided to switch the way that they did their manufacturing and started manufacturing parts overseas and jobs started going offshore. The population of, I should say the percentage of unemployment was on the rise. This was coinciding with third wave immigration from the Caribbean. And um, what we saw was an area like Westland Creamery, which is probably the number two employer of, um, of the area, was inundated with what people thought were uh, um, uh, foreign people taking jobs, which really wasn't the case. And it caused a huge rift of not just um, incredible and, and quick poverty, but coincides with um, you know the drug crisis of the 1980s. Um, we might not have been ground zero for the crack ep- epidemic, but um, certainly did all uh, the city did all it could to catch up as quickly as possible. And I believe that um, heroin had also had a tremendous impact very early on. So you're talking, you know, from 1982 to 1985, the city kind of sailed off the map. And I remember being about 12 years old and having my bicycle stolen outside of Dana Phillips' book shack and a kid coming in and telling me that his friend stole my bike and telling me the kid's address and everything. And, you know, Dana let me use the phone to call my mom to pick me up. And, and we drove to confront them. And... It was in the Highlands. It was um, on not um, not Adams, but the street that kind of spilled back over onto um, Commercial Street, and right in back of High Rock Tower. And the um, the kid's mother was basically threatening to to kill me for um, for having the audacity to come back and and want to ask for my bike back. And we had to call the police. And um, while the police were coming, someone moved the bike, but it, it had been there. And it was just kind of like you realized at 12 or 13 that this wasn't the city you grew up in. And now where you guys all lived, which was uh, closer to South Street, right? Yep. Yeah, we were down in Westland. By the time you met us, we were down in Westland. Yeah. I was actually born at the foot of the Highlands. Right, right. And the um and that that area had really started to change rapidly, like really quickly, maybe from even the late seventies, and you know when when I would hear you guys talk about Tim, you know Tim wasn't a guy that was often around, but he would come in every once in a while, and he had previously owned the shop before he sold it to um, what was Tom's last name. Egan. Tom Egan. Yeah. So Tom and his wife yep. bought it, and they weren't really. Um, they weren't there a lot. Like they were the owners, but they they really just poked their heads in maybe once a week and kind of let the business run itself. And um, right, they had hired a local girl at first, and that lasted poorly for about a year. And that's when they brought me in for a four year tenure. Right. Um, you know, having kind of grown up in the store myself. Right, and then Brian Keedy after you, and the um yep. so. Tim Cole, who has Cole's comics still, um, he's not open very frequently, but he has maintained a presence um, on the North Shore, um, was a huge influence on you guys. And I know that he was sort of like a 
a bit of a surrogate dad and, um, you know, just a great master storyteller. And how old were you when you first walked into that shop, the shop that you'd end up working at years later? Well, strangely enough, um, this this story that you're asking me to tell and the one that you tell all start the same way. And it's a kid on a bike that dumps the bike outside. You know, if you can tell whether you're ever going to hang around in the store again. If you leaned your bike up against the store window, yep. dropped it in front of the door, yep. you were frigging doomed. Yeah. You know, everybody was going to spit on you and you'd be you'd be stoned and turned away. Mm. Uh, but if you're smart enough to, you know, lean it in a nonchalant place or away from where it could damage the glass and come in and, you know, be civilized like the rest of us, you'd basically be welcomed in there. Yeah. Um, I I want to say I was like seven. Mm-hmm. You know, it was me, my cousin, my friend Kevin. They, they, there was a bunch of us. But if you wanted, you know, you know, realize when I was seven, it was probably and you know, Kevin McGrath, seven and ten. So we're talking seventy three, uh, late sixties, things like that. Yeah. If you wanted anything, I mean, you could you could find comics on a spinner rack at a at a pharmacy or things like that. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you wanted to see paperback books or trade publications or things of that nature um, that you'd never find anywhere else. For me, you know, Famous Monsters of Filmland was kind of like my Bible growing up. So right. even more so than comic books, you know, I, right. that could be pushed out of the way. Famous Monsters was it for me. Right. You know, I never had a more favorite favorite publication in my childhood mm-hmm. than that. But um, And I remember you, know, you giving was, me my first thing. copy of uh, Grand Illusions by Savini because um, you were okay. so enraptured by um, by special effects and being able to make you know cinematic special effects out of stuff that you could buy locally. Some not as easy to obtain <laughs> as, as others, but really doing a great job. Yeah, this kind of sodden upbringing leads to bad habits in your adulthood. It's, it's <laughs> obvious. Yeah. Um, you know, it's once again, the funny books riding the mind for every grandparent you ever had that, you know, they find out you're reading comics. They think it's the fall of Western civilization. Yep. Um, but the truth of the matter is there's, you know, it's, you go there, you, you park your bike and you go in to do things like, you know, amongst the many offenses I've committed on this planet, I was one of those children that did what they said and collected Marvel value stamps yeah. for it. So for every three for dollar comic you ever got missing a Marvel value stamp, mm-hmm. you know, me and my cousin took out as many of those as we could possibly get our 33 cents on. Yeah. Um, but you know, it it starts the same way. You drive your bike up, you go in, and it's like, oh my God, here are here are creative thinking people that um, are in touch with their imagination, and especially it's it's funny. The older you, the further back you go, the less you see of it. Watching being a you know old sodden overweight man of fifty four now, I look at the market and see the conventions and the you know the internet and the way the comic the way all of fandom, regardless of what it's for, has grown and how interconnected it is. Yeah. Back then, it was nothing like that. Right. It was a wasteland that, you know, if you happen to wander into and fit into, you were the odd kid out. Yeah. You know, back when nerd and geek were bad words. Right. So, you know, but that's what happens. You go in, you you meet people with the same mind, and you you it's kind of a creative cauldron that... If you're meant for it, you can never escape it. You know, yeah. it's just it's like finding your own people. And it really know? was an amazing collection of 
oddly intellectual people, you know, that it's true, you know, that, you, you know, grandparents or parents, in my case, my dad just was not a fan of me hanging out at a comic book shop at all. <laughs> and, um, you know, working at the post office and the stories that the postman would bring oh, back yeah, to him yeah. about the activities of that comic shop. But the, um, worse when it was comics, legends and lore. But the... Um, you know, the kind of... I take full responsibility for that. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of handguns around, probably. But, the, um, you know, the, the time and, and the, the fascinating group of people. I mean, you had, like, Dave Downs. And Dave Downs was, was a person who was clinically uh, sleep-deprived. who um, oh, yeah. And had, you know, just like a... You'd think he had a yarmulke. It was dandruff. Um, that was just caked to the top of his head. And he was like this kind of really um, unfortunate looking guy, but he could talk about anything. He was incredibly intellectual, um, a little bit, um, oh, what's what's a, a kind way of putting this? Um, I always, you know, having seen The Simpsons, I always think about him as being Mr. Burns as he was growing up. Um, <laughs> you know, it, Less evil, it, way less evil. Well, it takes you a while to get there, buddy. Trust me. Yeah, yeah. You pile yeah. the years on, you start, you know, you start mixing homunculuses and beakers and, uh, you know, coming up with evil plans. <laughs> so, but, yeah, no, Dave was exactly that character. He was your your quintessential um, manic-depressive recluse. And aside from the bookstore and the record store, mm-hmm. probably saw, you know, he went to Jerry's when he needed pants or, you know, one of the local clothiers. But right. aside from that... You know, he was he was housebound and did nothing but talk. Well, he talked a little bit of everything. That yeah. I think that's kind of the point you're making is that you know these people that others think are doing nothing but reliving that Stand By Me scene where it's you know Mighty Mouse versus Superman. You know, I, some of the best conversations I've ever had in my entire life, you know, happened leaning against um, you know an an old comics box. Yeah on some uh, repurposed counter from a closed restaurant in a bookstore in Lynn. Yeah, yeah, so, for sure. And yeah. he lived over by Cedarbrook, so where I played baseball, I remember we would. my mom would sometimes give him a ride home, and um, and we would end up dropping him off, and I just remember thinking, wow, you know, he lives in, in such this, in the suburbs, you know, and, yep. and it was just kind of fascinating because, I mean, even even among this group of odd men out, that was an odd man out thing, you know, that all of us were city kids, and um, and Dave was this kid who lived out by Linfield, and kid, I mean, he's probably older than all of us, right? But, um, yeah. you know, you talked about Kevin, and, um, and of course, you know, probably Scott Steves was starting to hang around at that time, and um, maybe shortly, the, I mean, Tom was probably hanging around around that same time. And then you had like the second generation of kids who were just a little bit older than me, like Greg and Mark Callahan and Tony and um, and all those guys. And one thing that also united all of us was aside from, and I think this was kind of um, par for the course, especially in, in the early 80s, uh, you guys had been playing Dungeons and Dragons since it was a series of pamphlets that, um, which I don't even know where you guys found them. Where, where did that stuff come from? You know, um, when you 
like, I don't know, hang out at, live at, work at, own a comic shop, mm -hmm. you can never quite remember where this stuff is because, frankly, all the people you deal with, you know, that's when, when it's important enough to hang around at a bookstore, mm -hmm. trust me, all your friends are nerds. Yeah. You know, you're not <laughs> going out. When you, get, when you get lodged somewhere where the main theme of what's going on at this social event is sports, you are frigging lost, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, the people you're hanging out with, and at one point, you know, for me, it was my buddy George Burnett, who just dug out these, you know, these little the, the pamphlets. It was the uh, the first edition box of D and D, and said, "Well, this is a game, and it's you know, if you draw, you, you it's kind of like making your own comics and so on and so forth." And you know, if for anybody who's never played D and D and doesn't understand, there's nothing I can do to explain it. Right. Uh, for anybody who has been you know addicted to heroin, uh, <laughs> it's like that, yeah. but it's the victimization of a child's mind you literally get to you are playing without regard yeah um and that's exactly what happens you know and and me and a few other people down there were just taken over by it we used to play you close the bookstore you play down there late at night and yep. you know you have seven or eight friends that gather together and but at a bookstore, it becomes, oh, my God, you get three groups of those people. So Yeah, yeah, um, and sometimes yeah. playing different games. Now, the um, the other cool thing, too, is that you guys were the first people I ever knew that kind of created your own system in that um, you had used as a template things like um, Dungeons & Dragons, but also brought in things from Dragon and added other stuff to play a game kind of of your own making, and it was fascinating that um, to the point that I would just kind of hang around to listen to and watch you guys play the game, not even as an active participant. And I would take the lessons that I learned from your um, DM style and take it to the games I was playing with kids my age. And so I was seen as kind of like the sage Merlin, you know, character among my groups of groups of friends when I was um, dungeon mastering because I had picked up so much. Um, great experience watching people who really did it well play and it would be so frustrating when um, I'd play with kids who just didn't bring that level like you say if they were also yep. playing you know uh, a friend of mine and, and I, I I say this with with great endearment uh, two two really good friends of mine in high school um, Ed Callan and Scott Yaffe who I uh, ended up uh, dungeon mastering a game for with I think Justin Reedy and um, and maybe a, a few other kids, and we couldn't even get into the module because they were fighting with each other, um, like attacking each other, physically attacking each other because sure. they, they were not getting along in in real life, and it was really hard to corral, um, you know, kids like that. And so um, and they would show up, you know, I started referring to it as the Santa Claus DM, you know, where you got these kids that got a plus three sword for for beating an orc or something. And um, yeah, so right. you, you just put them into like five minutes of um, Tuma Horrors, they'd be dead, and um, you could start from scratch. But um, you guys had a campaign, you know, with Bob Bianchi, and, you know, a, I, uh, I remember seeing a character, like a probably 30th level characters dying, you know, uh, characters you guys have been playing for five to seven years. And, um, and, and thinking like, wow, I, I can't even imagine you know, the, um, the loss, you know, the agony of losing a character that you've played for that amount of time. Well, it, you know, it's very, I guess growing up in a comic shop had another effect on the vast majority of the kids we played with. It made sense to us very quickly on that you don't really kill 
D&D characters, there are very few people that can step outside themselves to play a character. Right. They can have different attributes. You know, you can be a fighter, a mage, so on and so forth. Right. But most people like to play a reflection of who they envision themselves to be. Right. So, you know, we were guilty of many things, and one of which was creating what back at that time would be considered, you know, gods and galaxies campaigns. But, you know, you have to remember that the kids that are playing these campaigns are also the, at the time you met us, my God, I was what, 20, 21, something of that nature? Right. So realize that you're, whereas you're 12 and 13 just starting out at the bookstore, I started out there some, dear God, uh, 14 years prior to that. Yeah. And what we did before we ran the bookstore and we played all those games was, you know, we read all the Jim Starlin Captain Marvels. Right. We read all the Adam Warlocks. We read, you know, we were reading high, you know, high fantasy. I was one of the kids that, you know, I read a lot more paperbacks than I actually read comics. And so yeah. we got to the independent years yeah. when Ostrander and Truman were doing like Grim Jack and, yeah. um, you know, but I would read the, you know, the rights and, um, House of Secrets and Dreadstar. And I mean, you guys went back to that era. Yeah, you know. So when we're when you're when you're those kids and you're playing a creative game that you make up yourself, you know, the sky is the limit because yeah. we, you know, we learned from the masters. When we did, when we would describe a scene, it was easy enough for us to say that you know, all right. And so you open this door and you through the through the um, the ripped curtains in the on the walls, you can see in a lighting scenario, much like Bernie Wrightson would have drawn, you know, the opening to, and so on and so forth. Those were those were the creative fantasies we were trying to portray. Right. Um, so there was no limit for us, and 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 truthfully enough, it's not. I don't think it was so much us that showed you that. We, we might have been the first encounter you had with that. But truth of the matter is, it's the type of makeup that. I don't know whether all comic fans can be put that way, but, you know, back when we were comic fans, you know, even, yeah, even you, you came in at the, the tail end of it when there was nothing else. You know, we didn't have, um, you know, we had movies, we yeah. had TV, and we had comic books. Yeah. We didn't have the internet. You know, we didn't have video games. Video games were fucking pong. Yeah. You know what I mean? They yeah. were, you know, if you were, you, you were kicking poorly pixelated elves to try and get bags of food and other shit like that <laughs> yeah. on Golden Axe. That's what, those were video games to us. Dungeon, and then lift sudden, bar. <laughs> shit, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Warrior needs food. You know, when Gauntlet came out, I nearly fell over, you know, I yeah. stood there staring at that fucking thing for game, yeah. you know a couple of minutes before it ate what was left of my paycheck that week. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, it, so like it, you say, you it, know, was, it was it was film and everything. It, it was, and that was the thing too, is that, you know that I one of the things I treasure was going to the movies with you guys. I mean. I'm not not just to like you know steal a wine cooler, you know, but it was so much fun seeing <laughs> you know I, we went and saw Aliens, we went and saw um, I might even have seen Reanimator in the theater with you guys. Um, it was The Fly. I remember seeing The Fly with you guys, and it was you know just I remember when the um, oh what movie was it? Because <laughs> for people who don't know, Paul is a a a, a fear of spiders. And um, and always has. And the scene in I remember watching the thing on television. I think, and it was like uncut on Channel Thirty Eight or something. It was probably a Halloween uh -huh. party, probably at your house actually. And um, 
and when the head falls off during the the torch scene where everybody's chained together on the couch and the legs sprout out of the head and it walks across the floor you know you'd already seen the film but of course you know it wasn't like videotape was was super available I, I don't think that film was out on video at that point so you had to see it when it ran on television or you didn't see it at all and if you were lucky enough like we were to have a great regional station that would sometimes run stuff um uncut but not commercial free um that um you'd really you had a a great way of accessing this stuff and you know paul not not a small guy um gripping the corner of the chair and you could feel it you thought it was gonna break and then letting out a shriek as that that head walked away like a spider but i mean that was also the golden age of traditional special effects like all these things were were really um, coming together at that same time. And you, you made a really great point about the fact that at that point in time, uh, comic book shops were pretty much fantasy bookshops that had let comics take over. And so uh, Corner Bookstore, sure. of course, still had a pretty large collection of paperbacks. Um, by the time we moved over to Comics, Legends, and Lore on Monroe Street, um, the books were kept to pretty much a single bookshelf on the way to the back room. But um, but you were all, you guys were all reading the same stuff. So when you did make a reference and you could say something like you walk into a, a curtained room and you see um, a laboratory like you might see Bernie Wrightson illustrate, you all had context. You all knew it. And I think what's um, a little bit different today, but certainly just a few years after um, you all had started playing, was that there wasn't that same context. That um, that to a degree that it was even less cool to be interested in in fantasy and horror um you know and you were supposed to you know get uh into sports a lot younger and even for somebody like me who still played sports but was still into into horror and fantasy it was really um and i was sort of unapologetic about my love of things and i would bring fangoria magazine to school and get in trouble for it and you know, being a kid that would you know, draw students and teachers in compromising positions, get in trouble for that too. But that, um, you know, that film was was really at a kind of traditional effects apex. Um, you know, the um, the best, you know, new era of comics was just happening. We had we knew Steve Bissett, his you know his his wife at the time was from Lynn, and he would come in every once in a while. Um, you know, Bissett and and um, Sengoski became quite good friends, and and he would regale us with stories of what Alan Moore had cooking up next. And you know, you guys were all very much into um, Frank Miller's Daredevil, and 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 then when Dark Knight came out, I think your your advanced word of mouth on on Dark Knight number one and two made that the the biggest month of the year for that shop. And I, I remember we must have ordered at a certain maybe 2000 copies of um of those first two issues total in multiple in the various printings that it was word of mouth and people becoming interested in that and then it was the what's next and you had a deep bench so you could be like well you know this is different but you should check out american flag or this is also different but you know mage is one of my favorite things on the newsstand or you know this is no longer running but we've got the back issues check out you know these these claremont x-men or check out these um these ostrander teen titans if you like your superhero stuff if you want something a little less commercial you can check out you know you should be reading cerebus you know like there was all of this like really something to please everybody all at the same time of course, unless you were a person of color or a woman. And we could count probably on one hand um, how many people of color walked into the shop 
in a year and um and probably sure. how many women walked into the the shop in a year and um you know in, in a very different time um you know it was it was very common you know to be to hear you know that that click clack of of heels on pavement walking down the street and everybody would run out to the to the window and um and it was like it but it wasn't just the comic shop i mean it was the guys at the hardware store across the street it was it was interesting in and of that culture that it seemed like everybody was locked in these little um you know, man cages, you know, that um, surely more women walked into the hardware store than walked into the comic book store, but by percentage, maybe not so different. And um, um, so it was, it was interesting. No, yeah. I, I can definitely see that. I think that, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing cultural shift, you know, especially here, you know, fast forward to where we are now, we're, we're waiting, what, a month now? Um, five weeks, six weeks before Black Panther comes out, and yeah. it may be, you know, um, culturally uh, unacceptable to compliment Disney and Marvel, you know, them being so popular. Right. But truth of the matter is, I mean, you know, I remember when Black Panther came out, you know, I was old. When I, when I started collecting comics, you have to remember that, you know, I bought Fantastic Four number... Uh, what was 55, you know, whatever it happened to be for like, you know, at the exorbitant price of $3 yeah. and things like that. My, my Fantastic Four collection, I think the lowest number was 11 or something like that. And I probably didn't pay more than 20 bucks for it. Yeah. Um, you know, but at that point you see things like, um, Black Panther was a very avant-garde character being yeah. introduced into comics. Not only was it, you know, an interesting character, interesting, you know, there were very few completely black-clad characters at the time, but actually having a Negro as a superhero, mm-hmm. and then you give him, you know, the the awesome responsibility of being a king and a technological, and it spoke to a lot of kids, but once again, not a lot of black kids. Right. Uh, at least we didn't see him at the store. Now, right. here we are, 2018. Oh, my God. I, I, I personally believe Black Panther is going to set numbers for a number of different reasons. But without a doubt, this is going to be a Roots-like kind of occasion. They have put such effort into what I've seen for the trailers and all that. And, you know, the I, it's just changed so much. As a 54-year-old man, my, you know, I was hanging out at uh, a local makerspace up in Lowell, uh, Lowell Makes, and, you know, they have Castro. Um, is an, an incredible cosplayer who does all that stuff. And, you know, he's a Haitian kid who's come over and naturalized, and, you know, he's just, he's absolutely great at it. But to be a middle-aged white guy looking at fandom right now and seeing the progress that it's made, it's, I think that's part and parcel of the conversation we were having a little bit earlier. Yeah. The, the, you know, we were kind of skipping some of the compliments, but those creative people we're talking about that dump their bikes outside the bookstores as youths and go in and have those conversations really don't have time for the fallacies and racism, if that makes any sense. Right. There's a much more accepting crew. And, and it's funny, but that's that's not the case anymore. What's funny is that um, one thing we learned from this kind of Marvel retailer um, summit that they had um, at New York Comic Con was that... Um, a lot of the of the shop owners in places that weren't necessarily and it's funny to think of of Lynn as being a progressive place and granted we're in Massachusetts but um, as I often you know tell people it's like that the the Massachusetts I grew up in is not the Massachusetts of the Kennedys and um, you know of 
extreme liberalism, it's it's Tennessee North in in a lot of ways. That once you get outside of the major cities, there's there's a lot of people that it's very segregated. It was extremely segregated in the seventies. Oh sure. And um and so it's it's interesting that 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 shop would be such a welcoming space that people were it was not acceptable to be to be a racist to say racist things and not because there were other people that might you know that that might bear the burden of of a slur but because it wasn't acceptable among those people who didn't look like they bore the burden of a slur and and that's right. certainly true out here on on the west coast but there's a lot of places where um, you know, people like this, you know, they don't want diversity. They, you know, they want the same old, you know, um, stories. They, it, they feel like it's the birthright for, for white America. And it's, it's kind of, it's great to see that there's enough pushback that we had the Luke Cage series, which is a fabulous series on Netflix and that we've got sure. the Black Panther movie coming out and that it looks to be fabulous and that there's certainly going to be more prominent female characters in in the Marvel universe and in, and in other universes as we, as we've seen in Star Wars and and in other uh, great franchises but it is you know like you say you know as a 54 year old man and, and I as a 46 year old man seeing this happen it just makes me really really happy and hopeful for the future but what's making me even happier is that indie comics are really starting to approach the numbers of mainstream comics that sounds like better news than it is. What it really means is that mainstream comics numbers are now so low that uh, indie comics are, are actually helping to put a, a dent into the fan base. But there's a great comic on the stands right now called Black, which um, takes the idea that um, only, um, only African-Americans have superpowers. And so okay. it takes this idea of, you know, what's, you know, the sickle cell is this, um, this thing that, that only invades, um, people from, um, a certain, um, a certain swath of, of the population. And what if, you know, instead of there being this, this automatically negative thing, what if that also had the capability of making, um, someone completely advanced and special. And so it changes the idea of, of how, um, how people are looked at. And that's, that's a pretty, pretty great thing. It's a, a wonderfully written series. Um, also important series for, for the time. And I think it's already being adapted into other media. So if that can bring that demographic that's always been missing in the comics, that will be the game changer because then comic numbers can start going back up. You know, the publishers have been losing an audience for decades to things like video games and um, and just sure. other interesting things. But because they've never really aggressively gone after the audience that they say they want. Like you can have a female superhero, but if you're not writing it in a way um, that female readers are going to be engaged with. And if you're not actually doing any type of marketing towards that demographic, then what's the point? Then it's kind of a stroke job, right? It's like you get to say, well, we did it and it didn't work and, and pretend that there was effort put behind it. I wish that the publishers were using the same savvy that the studios have been so good at. And especially we really have to, um, single out Kevin Feige for, um, you know, his incredible, um, oversight to Marvel and uh, taking care of their brand and, and really helping expand uh, it. Finger, finger on the pulse. Yeah. I mean, I have 
I've dealt with a lot of friends, you know, you, it, it's, it's kind of like the faucets in your house. Um, fandom to me has gotten to be a hot and cold yeah. kind of running, you know, the minute something comes out, um, the first place you see it is Facebook and the internet. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it trickles down through news stations and becomes part of talk shows and things like that. But if you are out on the internet and part of fandom, uh, there is the, you know, I am the squishy, happy, old comics fan who no matter what they put out there you know i grew up watching nicholas fucking hammond portray <laughs> spider-man yep. every two or three fucking years on tv web and was chinese word walking to yep. school in the snow uphill yeah all that stuff and that terrible you know, dr strange um, made for tv movie oh yeah yes lover boy we we, we won't we won't go into that we story, won't talk about linda a, yeah we had a big fan at the comic store of Doctor Strange. She was one of our favorite people. Once again, I, you know, Linda, Linda, Linda was a very special person from the home up the street. Yes, and uh, you know, it's that's another thing to. Without really going into it, the bookstore was home to many people. The bookstore, you opened the, the door to the bookstore, and if you recognized the heart of kindness that was in there, yeah. you know, you mentioned racism didn't exist in there. You know, first story I ever heard about, you know, uh, black kids from Tim when he was a kid was he brought a friend home from school who was black. And when he left at the end of the day, you know, it was, you know, Jerry, his dad, who mm-hmm. was kind of the guy who raised me doing construction around town, and right. you know, said that, well, that's uh, Tim, your, your, your little friend there is. Uh, he's, he's a new guy. We, we thank you for bringing him by and welcoming him at school. And, uh, you know, at the, after he left and everything else, he goes, I know he's a really great kid and we had a lot of fun, but Dad, have you ever seen a kid with a tan like that? Yeah. You know, it's back then, that innocence. you know, it wasn't, yeah, it, it was. It was complete innocence. And when you, like I said, when you're busy doing creative things, Racism just doesn't make any sense. Racism is a poorly written plot, is yeah. what the fuck it is. Yeah, you know, It's yeah. too fucking lazy. There are perfectly good reasons to hate human beings for the reasons of their own manufacture. Yeah. You know, according to the color of their skin is just the epitome of, of low fruit. So it just didn't have any truck... You know, and and so it makes sense to me that within the larger community that, you know, you're a part of, I'm still some sedentary, you know, old fart um, close to his original hometown. But, you know, now the entire fandom is so much different. When I see cosplay, when I see the, the gender switching and uh, the race switching and all that, there is, you know, it, it's kind of like an ad hoc um improv of creativity yeah. at all these places. There are all these people who have one connection to comics for, for one reason or another. You know, it's whether, like me, there was no other home in the city for you to go to. And frankly, I think by the time you found yourself there, it was still the same way. Yeah. You know, your type of interests and and pastimes and things like that couldn't be satisfied at, you know, at a sports game. Yeah. Or, you know, you, you had to be, you were involved with, you know, being involved in bands and playing music and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the people that you actually, my God, you, you were one of the foremost music critics that I know of and have known of in my life. Realize that I grew up with a mono record player and, you know, them playing Red Buttons and the Five Nickels, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Motown was the advanced progressive stuff in my house growing up as a child. Um, It's just, I don't know, comics have always been a, it's a great place for decency to reign supreme, if that makes sense. All of your greatest fantasies, if you become a writer, you're portraying them for others. If you're a fan, you're reading them as portrayed by others. And there's there's a certain hope 
and a consistency that comes in comics. You know, there's plenty of anti-heroes out there and lots of the dark stuff as well. But, I don't know, it's... Comic books were such a... As I said, before the internet, it's where you went. If Aside from that, you had movies and TV. There weren't a lot of alternatives. Books. Um, but it's it's different. You don't, you know, nobody picks up a novel on a spinner rack when you're six years old waiting for your mother to fill a prescription at the pharmacy. Right. Um, a very powerful, incredibly powerful medium. And, you know, that's why people like yourself who make, you know, note of that and, and have, in fact, this, this podcast talking about that, I think it's a very... I think it's an incredibly important thing. You know, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here. My God, you're one of the foremost. I was going to say, we we have to end it there. It's not getting any better than this. But I definitely well, want to, I want to thank you so much for coming on and um and also you know I want to give a couple of shout outs that um for people who don't know um Paul Marcure was was a very big part of um of the the fantasy community in in the Northeast as a producer of of armor um hitting up a lot of the Ren fairs um producing under the the name of Eldritch Eldritch Armory and um, the first custom piece of armor I ever owned was made by Paul. The most impressive pieces of, of leather armor I've ever seen were made by Paul. And, um, you know, stuff that could withstand, you know, SCA and, and rattan and, and to a certain extent probably actual um, um, edged weapons. And uh, one thing that we also used to, to do um, in, in uh, my teenage years, in your early 20s, was go and participate in actual combat sports, um, you know, up over the, the border into New Hampshire. But, um, you know, these are things you can find on the Internet. I'm, I'm sure that people – do you still have a, um, a shop up for Eldritch that people can buy stuff at? Uh, the Eldritch website is still out there, Eldritch.com. Two E's, E-E-L-D-R-Y-T-C-H. Excellent. Paul, thanks so, a bunch. But, uh, you're, you're a very kind lad. <laughs> well, you know what? It's um, I owe a lot of this to you guys, and I've always done my best to, to try and pay tribute whenever I can. And, of course, I want to see you more often than I do and hope to keep making it back to, um, to Massachusetts to visit every once in a while. Um, it's interesting, you know, now that, um, you know, my mom had, had moved out of Massachusetts quite a while ago and passed away last year and... You know, people would say, well, there's less reason to go back. It's like, well, now there's actually a lot more reason to go back because I can go back because I want to and uh, not just, you know, every time somebody dies. So um, sure. looking forward to seeing you uh, again very soon. And um, we'll stay in touch, obviously. Paul, thanks for being my same, guest on episode here, 100. All right. Cheers. Take care. All right, buddy. Take right. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, we're going to take a little quick uh, commercial break here on Pod Sequentials and hear from one of our sponsors. Remember, you too can reach this influential demographic. You can send me an email at info at popsequentialism.com or um, you can find us on our social media at PodSec, P-O-D-S-E-Q, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Well, next up on the show, on episode 100, this landmark episode, is uh, someone else I've known for a very, very long time, and also named Paul. So we just heard from Paul Marcure, and now we're going to talk to Paul Glavin. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Good to talk to you again. Absolutely. And now, um, what's interesting is that um, you went to, to high school with my, my oldest sister, Robin. 
And I did. I, I knew your sister in high school. Yep. And and we met when um, when I started going to Corner Bookshop in Lynn, so the comic book shop that Paul worked at, that uh, Snagoski worked at occasionally, that had previously been owned by um, by Tim Cole. And, um, you know, we were talking with Paul Marcure about how there were so many different archetypes at that store. You had, you know, um, people like Dave Downs, and then you had people like um, Tom Sagoski, you know, kind of opposite ends of the spectrum where you had, um, you know, Dave being kind of an armchair intellectual recluse. And you had um, Tom, who was actually, you know, writing a lot of fiction and getting published. And um, and we we had you know Paul and 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 Scott Steves and these these big guys that were into into Dungeons and Dragons and then you, there was you and you were kind of this incredibly gifted illustrator and I mean the stuff well, that you can whip very up kind of there. <laughs> oh I don't know I think if if, if I run an image with uh, with this show of, of the stuff that you could whip out at lunch um, people will still be impressed and I'm I'm very happy to say that I've I've held on to quite a few pieces of butcher paper that, that were just wrapped around sandwiches that you would just whip a pen out and start drawing. But, um, of course, you were at one point working on what would have been, at the time, I think the first published comic um, for Tom Sagoski. And uh, Deadlines became a factor, and, and it didn't happen. But um, the well, other thing was a music. A lot of things became a factor. My, my, Tom was very creative and worked very quickly. I was probably the opposite of that. <laughs> yes, know, that's... I could whip up those little things at lunch, but when, you know, you know, there were there were a lot of factors in, in that. And like I said, Tommy was, was just so talented and moved, moved extremely fast. He'd been working with several people. He'd worked yeah. with Steve uh, Bissett with Taboo at the time, yep. I believe, yep. which was his first... Uh, Story Truth Decay, yep. and, I, and I was kind of recruited to work on on another project that you know the images still exist, you know the, the drawings, but, but he was moving a little bit faster than I was, and I think it, we were also moving in separate directions too creatively. Right, I right. was more of music. That is absolutely true. He, and so I, I mean, I well, have to sure. say that with um, we, you know, we talked to Paul about, and Paul had said that he thought that I had been, you know, uh, an astute music critic, and I'm thinking, no, no, Paul Glavin, <laughs> Paul Glavin knows music inside out, backwards, upside down, and from another planet, and. I can credit you for introducing me to the Sex Pistols, for um, introducing me to um, prob- probably Susie and the Banshees, um, you know, any of the stuff that had come out of England, but most especially and importantly for me and in my life, Rocky Erickson and the 13th Floor Elevators, and that your um, your love of, of psychedelic rock and garage rock um, really planted a seed in my head that carried forward for the next 30 years. Well, the core group, I, you know, there was a core group in that... that uh in that comic book shop um, that, that just, you know, I'm, I know I'm kind of stuttering here, but there seemed to be a creative core there that, that we're all collectively engaged in each other's interests. But yeah. Certainly followed their own news. And where you are now, if, uh, if I may say so, is certainly not very far from where I thought you'd be. Right. <laughs> right. Just, you know, I don't, you're just a remarkably creative and gifted individual, you, you know, and, and intellectually speaking, so too, because you would throw, I don't know, like you think I'm about six or seven years older than you, which isn't a big deal when you're in your 50s or in your 40s, but you came into that shop like a whirlwind, <laughs> and it turned everybody upside down <laughs> where you were coming from and, and how much you knew it. 
it, it was it was a challenging um, environment to be part of. If, if you were, I don't think anybody in there suffered fools gladly. I guess I'll say that. <laughs> I think that's true of most comic book shops. I think what what might have made my my integration a little bit easier is that people don't actually remember the first time I came in because I came in and I kept to myself and I stayed for very long periods of time just listening to the conversations before I just automatically started shooting my opinion out there. And it allowed me to really, well, to learn, number one, which I think is the most important thing and I think it's as important, more important probably to listen than to speak, but that um, especially because I knew I would see how people got treated. You know, we, I talked to Paul Marquier about if you pulled up on your bike and you leaned the handlebars against the window, you're about to face the wrath of the comic book shop gods. And um, whereas if you like put it out of the way and it wasn't in front of the doorway and, and, and you were a bit more respectful, that um, you got a much warmer welcome. And I had kind of seen that. And I think I got lucky in that the very first time I pulled up to that shop, I was probably about to put my bike next to the window and the door opened and someone got yelled at and had to move move their bike out of the way. And so I, I saw somebody else, you know, kind of catch the first wave of aggression and learned from that. And as I went over to those three for dollar comic racks and uh, started pulling up stuff by Wrightson and Kaluta and and uh, Barry Windsor Smith and, and Jeff Jones and, and all those studio guys and you know, stuff about Arthur Sidem and, and um, you know, the, the great kind of mystery and horror comics of the 70s that um, I would eavesdrop into these conversations that everybody was having about what they were interested in. And if by some reason I saw in the three for dollar rack something that was being discussed, it would make it into my pile. And so um, because the conversations were so passionate, it was very, very possible that... Um, you know, as Paul was adding up the comics, he really wasn't paying much attention to what was being sold. And so I just put money over the counter and I'd leave as he was still carrying on a very passionate discussion with, with somebody else, usually Jim Fontis or, uh, or um, one of the other kind of hangers-ons. And um, I had bought, I think, a, a G.I. Joe number one or two. And I brought it back and asked for my money back because I was like, you know, I, I saw this was valuable and I, I took it home and I read it and it's just pure garbage and I was hoping I could trade it for something else and they were just like looking at me like whoa you know this this doesn't really seem to fit the mold I was like would it be possible you know I noticed you had a couple of um, Batman and Detective these Joker fish stories could I trade this for that and and that kind of won me over I think was was the um the thing that they they couldn't believe anybody my age at that point knew about the Marshall Rogers Batmans um I know you were a much bigger fan of the Neil Adams Batmans uh which was the the I was definitely a fan of it yeah, but I think that was because when I started collecting, that was the that that was what was going on. Neil Adams was changing the whole uh, nature of Batman. He was returning it back to the to the roots, I guess people used to say back then, where he where in the 1960s to the early 70s, the Batman character was taking its lead from the TV show. Yeah, I got a little goofy, it was more yeah. cartoony, cartoony than Neil Adams. You know, who I guess you wouldn't say is a realistic artist in the sense of like. Realism, you know, right. not in the sense of a, of a, you know, the uh, what you call it an illustrator. Yeah, from that Bernard Hogarth school of, for what of was going anatomy. On in comics. Yeah, right. He was he was realistic for the for that medium, and but Marshall Rogers, you know, he sat somewhere in between it. Yeah. And, uh, like and a John Burnwood a little bit later. Exactly. Exactly. But I think when you came into that store, it was a breath of fresh air. You you 
you brought something else in there. You know, you you alluded to what I brought to you musically, but you brought the same. You know, where I was sort of set into a pattern of 1960s rock, garage rock, and psychedelia, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty much from still at you know these days. You coming with the, came in with this contemporary sound that just it opened up you know everybody else's ears. Everybody else was significantly older than you at the time. Yeah, and um, and it showed you know in that place that that there was there was open to new ideas. Yeah, and. And especially with our comic, our, uh, you, you took the horror comic and just ran with it. I, I remember when you first started reading Bernie Wrightson yeah. comics, and and the next thing I knew, I mean, out of nowhere, you had this EC comic uh, collection, yeah. and you could tell these stories. You knew everything about these comics, Matt. Which, yeah, the yeah, EC certainly. stuff, and I would I would copy the page layout, and I would write my own comics that were kind of in that goofy, you know, exactly. William Gaines tradition. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like this remarkable uh, renaissance that went on in this comic shop. And I don't know if you told the history of it before, but it had been owned by Tim Cole. Yeah, who a little bit. was a very quiet man, really, for the most part. And somehow he he sort of tolerated the mayhem about eight of us could bring into that story once. Yeah. And, and, and the peripheral going is on at the same time, you know. And, you know, somehow I think it's, I would say Paul Marcure was I would de facto leader, you know? Yeah, yeah. He was the guy that sort of uh, was the straw that stirred this this toxic sometimes drink that we created. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be the guy that was going to lead the battle against Pennywise if you were those kids, I guess. <laughs> but, yeah. The funny Another thing. Another person who followed his muse. You know, he's what he did in the store. Was, is obviously what he does now. Yeah, yeah, and you know, we talked at remarkable. the very end about um, about elders, just like barely even touched on it. But I wanted to let people know about um, about Paul's armor making. You know that because he had grown up reading, you know, everything from the Philip Jose Farmer paperbacks to um, you know the Frazetta covered Robert Robert E. Howard stuff. Um, he had been very very steeped in in fantasy. And um, more so than in the comics themselves. And, of course, you know, he brought in the um, the lead figurines, which became very successful um, for comics, legends, and lore. And, you know, something that I think Tom Egan was scratching his head at when um, when, when Paul told him he wanted to bring in, you know, little, little Grenadier figures. And that became one of the most successful things being carried in the shop. And that was, that was a relatively new hybrid. There really weren't any stores that were uh, comic shops and role-playing game shops. And... And the role playing games were really. No, he was he was definitely a uh, you know a uh, you know a, a visionary in that sort of thing. Yeah, it's 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 such a large uh, market now. But for those who didn't grow up in nineteen eighties, you know, late seventies and eighties, you could you could go a long way in your vehicle before you found a place. Yeah, yeah, but, for sure. And like I was saying, you know, I, I'd found the shop after uh, you know watching a TV show that talked about comics, and then trying to find comic books in the yellow pages. It was, of course, under books. There was no separate listing. And um, there were two big ads in the yellow pages, one for Phillips Book Shack and one for Corner Bookshop. And so I took my bike downtown, and, and that's when I first, um, you know, bumped into all you guys, so to speak. That's when it was by the, the bridge, wasn't it? Yep, under the bridge. And right. um, 
what's funny is that, you know, like I say, a lot of my, my musical taste kind of grew out of the stuff that you were hipping me to, cause I was already well steeped in, in the stuff that I, that I enjoyed and I was always discovering new music, but you had opened me up to going back to the past. And I remember you gave me, um, Iggy and the Stooges raw power one year for my birthday. And I mean, this was easily 10 years after that record had come out and it just ripped the roof off of, of my world. It, it was, I could not believe that number one, this wasn't a brand new record and that, um, that number two, that I hadn't already heard of it, that, that it wasn't the best selling record of all time. Like, like it just so many different things. I was thinking, you know, I can't believe how much, how much time I wasted as a Beatles fan. <laughs> and of course that's never Beatles, wasted yeah. time, <laughs> you know, but, but what a difference. Hold on. And this, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's never time wasted. I know, I know, I know. But the um and and then the punk stuff. I mean, like I was I because of you, I think um and it it happened to coincide a couple years later that Alex Cox's um Sid and Nancy movie came out, but I got everybody that I was in contact with uh into the Sex Pistols and you know, we were just that generation later that we were you know, like uh, six years old when the Sex Pistols were, were breaking and so it was a little off our radar that by the time we were 16, it was already kind of largely forgotten and taken for granted. And um, I, I sort of... That would be the Sex Pistols you're talking about Yeah, there? yeah. And, and I kind of, I became so obsessed that uh, all of my friends who were mainly heavy metal kids really started listening to the Sex Pistols and it even started to kind of crossover into um into the kind of mainstream of of that high school and i went to you know private high school you know st mary's after uh eight years in in public school it was a very cruel thing to do to a boy oh, they must have loved that there oh yeah right <laughs> and um but then there was also you know slaughter and the dogs and um you know 999 and like all the um kind of ancillary British punk rock stuff that, that you threw on these tapes for me and uh, gave me tapes of early Beatles outtakes and, and other psychedelia and, and the Rocky Erickson stuff. And, you know, I, I even when I was, I think when I was class president, I, I wrote a letter to Pink Dust Records asking if Rocky Erickson wanted to play like a school dance or something. And I got a letter back from Bill Hines saying that uh, Rocky had no plans for touring the Northeast at that time. <laughs> But, no, I did something similar. So, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you also, I think, got me a job at WLYN, um, at, at like a weekend job, and it it was in the record vault. Um, but I didn't work with you. But I think you had just worked there and were leaving or something, and they yeah, they I was I was for, just leaving there. They had just, uh, I think, uh, what's his name? I just bought it. Steve Mendes had just. And it was, so it was just turning uh, into WFNX. Was finishing, was finishing the purchasing of it, and it hadn't changed the call letters to WFNX, uh, which is, I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with that station, but they broke. Uh, Nirvana smells like Teen Spirit. They're pretty much credited with that. They were. They also kind of broke the, the Smiths, right? I mean, they were kind of the WMXU right. of of Boston, and um, and of course it was in Lynn. And so I was I was working the record vault the first week that FNX was on the air as FNX, and um, you know these records were coming in, and it was you know a very different line look like. You just did not know what this music sounded like based on the design of the records, and there was a lot of stuff coming out. You know, it was the Rough Trade albums coming out of England. There was the um, IRS stuff coming off the West Coast, and um, and you had all you know the um, you had stuff coming in from the Midwest. You had like the Husker records coming in, and and it was just kind of amazing to see all this stuff side by side, and and to see you know listen 
to the program director, you know, kind of really allowing um, a lot of freedom for Russ Martin, to play. Right? Hmm? Was that, was that, I think that was still Russ Martin at the time. Wasn't yeah, it? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. And then, of yeah. course, that was like right around the corner from the from the newspaper. So you had like the Lynn item was right there. So corner bookstore was, was under the bridge. Across the street from that bridge was the Lynn item. Um, next door to that was basically uh, FNX. So all these things were um, on, you know, in the most blight worthy part of town. You know, it looked like a demilitarized zone. And, you know, it looked like... <laughs> It's so it was terrible. dangerous sometimes. It wasn't dangerous in the sense that you could get shot, but you know, there were a lot of bars there where people were coming out and they were pretty lit up. And, yeah. Uh, it was a tough town, so. Yeah. <laughs> there, there was a, uh, the potential for disaster there sometimes late at night. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was pretty much <laughs> off. I was off the grid by the time it got dark down, down in those days. I mean, I did spend a lot of time over by the library, which, of course, was in in a way an even worse neighborhood, you know, over there in Central right. Square, because I'd have to walk down um but You also had Dave Pierce's record shop there, too, you know. Yeah. Like you got a lot of... Oh, you got all my Yardbirds records of... there. I got a music machine exactly. still sealed. The, the records that that man would get into that record shop, you know, played a big role, I think. And, you know, while you were learning that, you know, this is personally speaking, you hit that shop up and you you hit it. Mike, uh, oh gosh, I can't believe, you know, I can't remember his uh, last name right now. Any other time, um, geez, Mike, Mike, the, uh, he's, he's a big kid. Um, Tetro? The sounds... That's it. Mike Chatter, I can't yep. believe I couldn't I was having a brain uh, freeze there. <laughs> That's right. But the sounds that were coming out, so there's a lot of these sounds that you were talking about in slaughtering the dogs and the pistols and these garage records and mm-hmm. psychedelic records were very easily available at that guy's record shop. Yeah. He seemed to have a talent for going to warehouses and cleaning them out. So a lot of people had to search and look or couldn't hear it, you know, with no YouTube and no internet and everything. Yeah. You can walk into this guy's shop and they were right there. Yeah, I mean, I picked up maybe six or seven Texas International Artists labeled 45s in that shop. I picked up Bubble Puppies, Hot Smoke and Sassafras. Um, Easily, you know, one of the, um, I had, I think You're Gonna Miss Me. And um, I definitely had, um, oh, Red Crayola. And and some other stuff like is if you're a record collecting you know geek then then you know international Texas artist label is is kind of a um, a big deal for for psych collectors and you you, you know there were those holy grail records you look for like a cream soda record or flat earth society but um, well, the Mariani, guy that owned it his name was his name was uh, Dave um, Dave Smith yeah yeah and, and Dave. And Dave uh, ran a place called Star Rhythm Records. I don't know if you remember that. No. And, and Dave re-released, you know, one of the rarest of all garage records, uh, the Battle of the Bands on Onyx, and he did it so well that to this day, people can barely tell the difference between an original and his reissue. He also uh, signed the Real Kids and released their second album. Wow. So anybody out there that's a fan of the Real Kids. They're huge out here. Talking about yeah, the, the, the Real this, Kids this are very big in L.A. Was, was a was very active in the local Boston music uh, yeah. scene as well. The uh, the Dogs, uh, D A W G S, uh, Phil Hainan's band, and uh, the City Thrills. He he had a quite a roster of uh, of records that uh, that still stand the test test of time to this day. <laughs> you know, it's remarkable what he did. He had that "This Is Boston, Not LA" album on his wall. <laughs> it wasn't particularly valuable, but he just had it there. 
<laughs> which was not that you had a lot of LA visitors to come in that were going to talk any noise, but it was it was certainly you know kind of a totem of the era and. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I wanted to have you on, you know, because it's again, this is my opportunity in my 100th episode to to kind of do what Dave I want. Yes, I take that back. His name is Dave Pierce. Pierce, yeah, Dave Pierce, Pierce. right, right. Dave Pierce. Yep. And um and yeah, right across the street from the police station. <laughs> right across the street from the police station, right next to a headshot, yeah. which was right across the street from the police station. Yeah. <laughs> and around the corner from about three bail bondsmen. Well, hey, Paul, man, thanks thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming on the show. And um, you, you have a show on Luxuria Radio, right? Yeah, I, I work out of uh, – actually, it's not an internet show, but we do broadcast on the internet. It's, uh, it's called uh, Airgasm, and I've uh, sold Rare Garage Records uh, in psychedelic records for years. I use that name, Airgasm. I wish I'd copyrighted it because mm-hmm. I see it quite a bit. Yeah. But um, – it's on every Wednesday night, uh, Central Standard Time at 5 p.m. on WXNA, and it's a uh, brick and mortar radio station that actually lets us. It's a free form community radio station. And that's Nashville, in Nashville, Tennessee. Yep, and it's low power, so we do it every Wednesday night. It's called Again the Orgasm uh, Garage, crazy uh, rhythm and blues from the 50s, um, all kinds of just wild and uh, you know surf. Uh, surf instrumentals and whatever I really want to do. <laughs> and you've got a deep, <laughs> deep bench. You've got an amazing record collection. And so you're always pulling out some amazing stuff. You're one of my favorite things to see in my feed on Facebook because I can just hit play. And <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. I appreciate thing. that, Matt, coming from you. Oh, my pleasure. Hey, Paul, thanks again. And thanks for joining me in my 100th episode. Matt, it's my pleasure. And I'm honored to be there. And, you know, if I may just say something before I go, it's, you were quite the sponge back then. It's nothing unexpected to see you where you're at right now. Oh. If anybody had known you back then, it, it was not a surprise and knocked me down. I couldn't see this coming. It was like this was a trail that you followed in a straight line. Yep. So congratulations <laughs> to, to yourself for the show and for everything you've done. Thank you so much, Paul. The trail of beers, we'll call it, instead of the trail of tears. <laughs> and Lord knows what else. Right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Paul. Have a great afternoon. Take good care of yourself, Matt, and thank you very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, again, I want to thank my guests, Paul Marcure and Paul Glavin, uh, two of my big brothers, so to speak, um, growing up uh, in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, just down the road from where they hung a lot of witches uh, a few years before, and um, really helping to shape who I am and what the show has been, and um, a good show, I think, to set the tone for what's to come. Um, what we're going to be having coming up in the next couple of weeks, I finally booked that interview with Paul Lavenda, uh, with Peter Lavenda, sorry. I'll do that again. We'll... Coming up in the next couple of weeks, we've got a new show coming up with Peter Lavenda, a guest I've been trying to book since the very first episode. Um, he's been working very tightly with Tom LeBong from uh, Blink-182, been publishing a lot of material on um, on UFO activity using uh, footage and a, a board of directors that comes straight out of the American military and intelligence communities. So um, it's going to be really fun. You know, this, this, I think, really caps up perfectly. Um, episodes uh, one through 100. Uh, hopefully it gives a little bit of insight into um, what brought me into doing this and why I still do it. And I think because it's always worth doing that um, as the culture changes and as, um, you know, the things that we enjoy and, and the the subjects that fascinate us um, become more and more niche or they become more divided, that it's, it's easy to forget that um, just uh, reaching out to other people every once in a while and surfacing up and saying hello and having conversations in the real world 
um, can really be a, a game changer and make things um, just incredibly better. So um, I hope you continue to, to tune in. I hope you've enjoyed this, and I hope it wasn't too self-indulgent, but um, I really wanted everybody to hear the voices of the guys that uh, helped make me who I am today. So uh, next week we'll be talking to Tom Sagoski, who you've heard discussed a bit on uh, on this podcast. Uh, Tom, of course, no stranger to people in comics or in fantasy um, or in young adult fiction. And um, another boy from Lynn who uh, also hung around the, with, at Tim Cole's bookshop and uh, had a, a very, very impact, very big impact on me and I'm looking forward to speaking to. So uh, until next time, this has been Matt Kennedy. This has been Pod Sequentialism. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.